Swirling seas, massive waves, and no land for miles. The beaches in this area draw tourists year-round, but the waterways leading between them have been feared as some of the most deadly in the world. Are these incidents caused by human nature, wicked weather, or something more sinister? This week's episode is The Bermuda Triangle. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. Is your book report prepared? Oh, yes, I have my... Why am I British? I don't know. I was your school mom. Christy, where's your book report on the Devil's Triangle? <laughs> yes, one of the books that we reference in today's episode is the exact book that I did my middle school book report on. So we had good. it in our house. I just I found it interesting. I picked it off of our bookshelf, and there you have it. This was one of the first... Like mysterious, creepy things I remember being really into as a kid. And it's still fascinating, despite, you know, we know a lot more now about how the ocean works and stuff. But, you know, at the same time, it's a it's one of those things that still is fun to think about. I agree. Did you, what were the other books that the kids were writing about? Were you kind of off base or were there some other kids that were doing weird stuff? I have no you can't recollection. Remember. Yeah. I well, really I imagine they weren't all doing Bermuda Triangle. (laughs) I don't think that they came in with, you know, tales of death and destruction and mystery. And you're like, this was the Navy's largest loss of life outside of combat. And they're like, thank you, Christy. Everyone give her a round of applause. Stop crying. Stop crying. It's okay. A lot of people died in her report, but it's okay. Uh, For real, this is a badass subject to choose, though. This would be that you chose that. I'd be like, hey, I really liked your book report. (laughs) See, we would have been friends. Yeah. I wish that I could remember what the requirements were. If it was like something creepy or a mystery or if it was just any book. And I said, this is what I'm going with. Either way. Yeah. Yeah. It was probably, oh, sixth, seventh grade, maybe. Yeah. That's the year they start. I had to do a book report on any autobiography and I chose RuPaul's autobiography. Nice. And my mom was like, yeah, RuPaul's fucking awesome. Get that book. (laughs) And I did a report on it and it was great. And it was, I think it shaped my understanding of, of all people when I was growing up, you know, like there was not drag queens in my school. It didn't make me, it didn't damage my brain. It didn't turn me into a drag queen. It just made me go, good for you doing your art, sticking to it. This book is great. I actually think I still have a copy of that book. So it's, it's oh, nice. I thought you were going to say the book report and I was going to say, we need to see that ASAP. I did find my teacher who I'm still friends with and is a listener. Hello, Kay. She found a short story about a woman who was viciously killed that I wrote. Turns out, (laughs) you guys, in real life, that lady's name was the name of the woman that was dating my favorite Backstreet Boy at the time. And the main (gasps) character was a guy who had the name of my favorite Backstreet Boy. (laughs) This was a fictional story you wrote? Yeah, I like turned fan fiction in as a short story. (laughs) (laughs) So your favorite Backstreet Boy's fictional but yet also a little bit real love interest was killed in this story that you wrote yeah she was um pancaked by a bus and 
Yeah. Damn. So <laughs> Howie D. We wanted that Howie D. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I did. Uh, Paris just showed me an old, and I will stand by it. I still love Howie D. He showed me an old clip of MTV Cribs that Punk Rock NBA, which is like his favorite YouTuber, was doing like a commentary on, and it was Howie's house. And he goes, Here's my bathtub. One time I was at a hotel in Germany and they had a television in the bathtub. So I put one in, and then it cuts to the end of his bathtub. It's like an alcove. He's put, this is like back in the day, so like 2000. He put a television, but it was on phone books. Paris was like, <laughs> he was like, man, their manager did them dirty and stole all their money, right? He has his televisions on phone books on MTV. I was like, it's very, very embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. Also, if a phone book falls in the bathtub, that's donezo. Yeah. And it becomes the size of your house. It just yeah. absorbs. <laughs> it's like those science experiments with the foam where you just drop something in and it becomes this huge thing. How do we stop book. it? How do we yeah. stop it? We can't. We cannot. Can't. Do they even make phone books anymore? I don't think that they do. But you know how like in phone books you used to see like AAA plumber or whatever? Mm-hmm. I saw a tweet today and somebody made a good point. They named their Thai restaurant Thai Food Near Me. Because back in the day, oh, you do AAA plumber because you open the phone yeah. book and you look in the A's. Now you're going to type in Thai Food Near Me and bam, they're going to come up. That's genius. Fuck, that is genius. Yeah. So smart. Yeah. That is keeping up with technology. Yeah. And the technology, that's what kept up here. This is, I think, why the Bermuda Triangle, we've heard fewer incidents here in the past few years because we've maintained, the aviators have maintained their grip on technology. But back then, the ocean had the grip. Fuck. It still does. Let's not act like <laughs> yeah, we're I better mean, than for the real. It does indeed. Well, this was the voted on topic from our getting into it tier patrons, we um, we chose three topics from back in the early days, and we said we will redo one of these for you all. And this is one that they picked. So thank you so much to everyone that voted on this. It's a fascinating subject still, and it was fun to to re research. I was going to say, um, from my perspective, because you said you noticed that in the notes, it was like Heather pulls out post-it notes. Because back <laughs> in the day, I was quite busy and I was like, ah, I'll look some stuff up. I learned so much more researching this time and we've technically <laughs> covered this topic. So thank you all for voting because I was like, you know, you kind of go, well, I've already covered that. And I'm like, oh, no, I did not. I didn't look into any of this stuff. The outline from that episode, which was episode 11, and mm-hmm. we are now on episode 232. Night and day. Also, yeah, just like sound wise, everything wise. Everything. And if you're anybody, like, oh, I want to hear it. No, you don't. It's fine. You don't want to hear it. Trust this us, is what this you is hear. much better. This is what you want to hear. We don't even want to hear the the original one. Crawled Didn't even go back asshole. and listen. Just read some stuff and said, I can maybe take two or three sentences from this and reuse it. I was like, Christy's on it. I don't need to go back. I don't need to look <laughs> looking forward. Much like these pilots were doing. And uh, forward was not where they thought it was no. in a lot of these cases. I just talked to my friend. Tim is in Florida getting his seaplane license. So he can fly all different types of planes, but you have to get rated. You need an extra rating. Mm. And I called him going, hey, what do you know about the Bermuda Triangle? He's like, did you know where I was? And I was like, No. <laughs> He's like, I'm in Florida, like on the edge of the Bermuda Triangle. I was flying a seaplane over it. I just landed a seaplane. And I was like, well, so you're good. You didn't disappear. (laughs) (laughs) Did any of the compasses go haywire? Did you uh, lose consciousness or become disoriented? He traveled through time. Yeah. Did you go through a wormhole? None of those things happened. Good for him. 
Yeah, he's nice Bad and for safe. us because I'd like the story, but I'm glad that he's safe. <laughs> We're all said and good. Not that we can't say that about some of the folks in this. No, 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 no. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. The Bermuda Triangle, the Devil's Triangle. No matter the name for it, the stretch of land off the eastern coast of the United States that extends from Bermuda to southern Florida to Puerto Rico has a mysterious reputation. This area has been marked as a zone of strange occurrences for centuries and is estimated to stretch anywhere from 500,000 to 1.5 million square miles. According to Marine Insight magazine, bizarre incidents have occurred there even as early as the voyage of Christopher Columbus, who reportedly spotted a fire in the sky that crashed into the sea during his 1492 campaign of bloodshed across the water. I recently learned because uh, I think school books have been edited a little bit, especially from my day and or I just didn't listen back then, but that Columbus had such a grip on on astronomy and when the planets would move and how and when eclipses would come and how that he utilized that as a way to lie and trick people whose land that he landed on. And he said, you know, give me all your corn or give me all this stuff. And if you don't, my God will blot the sun out and turn it black. Well, he knew he's like, you have seven days. He knew like in seven days that there would be an eclipse. And so then it would happen. They'd be like, Oh my God, we're so sorry. You're a God fucking trickery. However, knowing that he knew about astronomy, I'm like, well, what did he not? I mean, he didn't know everything. It was 1492, but seeing something off the horizon that you're like, well, I know that there's a moon. I know that there's other planets. Like he was at least reasonably understood that kind of stuff. What the fuck did he see falling? Mm-hmm. Shooting star, probably. <laughs> Shooting star, meteor, Kraken, Kraken with a sparkler. Kraken catching a UFO. <laughs> Author John J. Quasar calls the disappearance of an entire squadron of torpedo bombers off the coast of Florida in 1945. Without debate, the beginning of the Bermuda Triangle, the cause of its subsequent shape, name, and the most enduring part of its fame. The incident occurred on December 5, 1945. It began as a routine training mission for the Naval Air Force, comprised of five aircraft flying in formation with a combined crew of 14. Designated as Flight 19, the mission was only scheduled to last for around 2 hours and 15 minutes. They had planned a triangular route. First, they would take off from Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale, fly out 120 miles east over the Bahamas, then make a pass to the ruins of a shipwreck around 50 miles from base to make dummy bomb runs before returning to base. Should anything go wrong, the men planned to be no more than an hour's flight back to base throughout the duration of the mission. You think, okay, it's a nice afternoon. It's only going to be like two hours. And no, at no point, if the shit goes down, we can just turn and go back. So you're like, it's not a bad day. No, it seemed like a perfect day for flying. Before takeoff, ground crews topped off the plane's fuel and oil and completed all their pre-flight safety checks. With full tanks, each of the five planes would have enough fuel to last them 1,000 miles, well over what they needed for their mission. The entire crew was comprised of well-trained and experienced men. Several, including the pilot leading the mission, Charles Taylor, were veterans of combat over the South Pacific. Each pilot had over 350 flight hours and was traveling in his plane with a crew of two others, including a gunner and a radio man except for one plane that was short a radio man who failed to show up for the training that day. 
best well. time to sleep in <laughs> your life. I'm see a sliding door moment for for this man for sure. Right? They're like, God damn it, you were late, and he's like, I know, I know. Wait, what? What happened to the phone? <laughs> Wait, oh. no, nobody came back. Okay. It's been nice knowing you guys. Here's my hat. I quit. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Immediate quit of job for sure. Oh, yeah. A near miss like that does not come twice. No, 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 no. You say, thank you, universe. Uh, I'm not going to tempt fate twice. Bye-bye. At takeoff, the conditions were beautiful. There were no storms on the horizon, with reported fair conditions as the planes left the ground around 2.10 p.m. The men reached their cruising speed of 140 miles per hour. According to the Navy's record of the incident, the first leg of the flight went smoothly. The planes dropped their practice bombs and headed north to continue the next leg of the flight. That's when, around 3.45 p.m., things started to go wrong. Taylor radioed to the Fort Lauderdale flight tower, sounding, Worried and confused. According to the Navy. All of a sudden, his instruments were behaving erratically. He told the tower, We cannot see land. We seem to be off course. When pressed for his location, Taylor paused for a stretch before saying, We cannot be sure where we are. Repeat, cannot see land. The tower operators looked to the skies where they expected to see the planes and saw nothing. They then lost contact with the aircraft for 10 minutes. This is terrifying. No, I was thinking about this. I have a terrible sense of direction. Yeah, I always have. I'm, I, it's just something that, for whatever reason, I can't do. I was thinking, oh, well, you're up in the sky. You know, there's just sky. It's probably easier to get around. Oh, no, no, no. Because there's no landmarks at a certain point. If you're just over water and you can't see anything, how do you know where to go? Right. That's why I asked him that. I was like, what do you, he, what do you even do? He's like, you have to rely on your instruments. He's like, now if you're in Dallas and you're flying over Dallas and your instruments go bad, you can look and be like, I know that highway. I know mm-hmm. this landmark. I know downtown buildings or whatever. But yeah, when it's nothing but the horizon and also a different aviator in the, the uh, Quasar book was explaining the horizon and the, where the water meets the horizon, it can make it just look like the water goes on forever or like, oh, I can't go that way because there's something over there. Well, maybe I'll go to it, but it's all just a mirage. So it creates a lot of disorientation and optical illusions. Not to mention clouds aren't like the Simpsons where they're just like little puffy puffs that like move back and forth. They can move up, down, sideways. They're vertical. They're swirling. And so when you think, okay, I'm oh, the clouds are going this way. I'll turn my aircraft. Well, you may be turning at a crazy angle if you're not paying attention to your instrument panel and just trying to look outside because what you think is a cloud above you is a cloud down and to your right. Yeah, that's one of the scariest things of flying to me is if I were a pilot, the disorientation, especially over water where you can't tell the difference between water and sky. And not only until you're about to go nose first into the ocean do you realize oh fuck this isn't the sky and then it's way too late yeah and you i mean explode on contact depending on how fast you're going and what you're flying yeah and it's as soon as you realize it it's too late yeah yeah which probably is the best way to go (laughs) i mean if if you if it's i don't want to realize it and then be dealing with it for an hour and then die. I'd rather just be like, fuck, and then peace out. 
And then, and yeah, if there's nobody that can get you on the radio and nobody that can help you, yeah, it's just like, don't tell me. I just, just black it out. I'm good. Yeah. I'm good to go. But I saw mm-hmm. a woman, it was viral. I think she went on the Today Show. Her nose gear fell off while she was in air and another pilot saw it and radioed to her and she, he said, are you okay? And she's like, no, my nose gear fell off. He happened to be a flight instructor and a dad. She was a younger pilot. She had the same name as his daughter. She was also named Taylor. And he, on the radio, walked her through how to make Aww. a landing without nose gear, which is an extremely difficult move. But because he remained calm, he's like, my dad, my dad instincts kicked in, my teacher instincts kicked in. And he was, he walked her through it and she was fine. And like, even when you're going down, I mean, you have to like go no. You have to touch the nose to the ground. She was like kind of a pa- not panicking. She, she remained calm the whole time, but he's like, you got it. You got it. Just like walking her through what is an otherwise terrifying situation. So yeah, yeah. If you're, you don't have somebody doing that for you and you're out in the middle of the ocean, then all the worst things that just come into your mind, come into your mind. Yeah. Good for him. Because if she doesn't land the plane correctly, what a horrible thing that man now has to live with. Right. That you just witnessed something terrible, but the yeah, fact that yeah. And heard it. Man. And yeah. Sinisterhood will be right back. Staticky radio transmission suddenly returned. The tower could hear all five pilots sharing their compass headings. Surprisingly, they didn't match, leading the pilots to argue over which way they were going and which way they should be going. Two of the pilots believed they should fly west. According to official naval records, the tower heard another voice, not Taylor's, say, We cannot find west. Everything is wrong. We can't be sure of any direction. Everything looks strange, even the ocean. After even more silence and no response from the men, the tower overheard discussion that Taylor had turned command of the mission over to another pilot, as Taylor had lost sight of the rest of the crew. The new pilot in command began making his own directives, telling the others to fly west, believing they were in the Atlantic Ocean and would eventually hit Florida. And yeah, when you're flying around Florida, it's just almost up and down, north to south. And so if you're in one type of ocean, you go one way. If you're in the other ocean, you go the other way. But if Mm -hmm. you don't know what ocean you're in. And if you're in the middle of the ocean, say land is behind you, but you think it's in front of you. And you're like, let's just keep going the way we're going. And you're just going further out into open water. And you only have so much gas. Yeah. The tower got no update for 20 minutes. Then they heard something awful. The voice of flight leader Charles Taylor. Now. Trembling, bordering on hysteria. According to the Navy. He said through static and cut out transmissions. We can't tell where we are. Everything is. Can't make out anything. We think we may be about 225 miles northeast of base. The Navy reported that he rambled incoherently for a few moments before saying his final words and the final words from anyone on the mission. It looks like we're entering white water. We're completely lost. This is so chilling to me still. I remember reading about this from a book report and now <laughs> even hearing it. Oh, 30 plus years later, it's just the, to, to think of the panic and the uncertainty of not only the men in the plane, but also just everyone trying to like scramble and get them back. It's just complete chaos. Yeah. The people on the ground want to help, but they really can only help to the extent that they know where you are because they can't send a plane to come and save you and they can't give you directions. So you're like, I want to help you, but I can't. So my hands are tied and you're just hearing someone just die. Yeah. 
and it looks like we're entering white water. It's so eerie. Yeah, Was it guess- the sky, you know, did again like the delineation between air and land didn't it was just all blurred? Was it clouds? Was it a huge wave? You know, I mean, there's a lot of things that could mean. Yeah, or he thinks, oh, that's water and it's super choppy, but really it's a wave and he's upside down. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't know that that's down is up, which is a thing that can happen. Fuck. In- yeah, you could be upside down. You can get vertigo in, in planes. When you can't see out. So whenever, every time I've flown, like physically taken the yoke and flown has been visible, visual flight conditions. Like I cannot, I'm not trying to just rely on instruments because I don't know enough about them to do that. But tons of pilots do obviously every single day, especially if you take off in a thunderstorm. But you also, at least when you're flying over land, have some frame of reference. But Back then, all you had was you had your compass. They had, Tim explained to me, some type of gyroscope that you would set before you set out in case your compass went awry. But you had, all you had was the panel in front of you and then the commander, in this case, Charles Taylor, telling the other four planes, I'm doing this, you do the same thing as me. Because that's that's their that's the purpose of a mission, right? We all do the same thing together. Mm-hmm. So if that one guy in lead gets messed up, he gets his bearing, he loses his bearings, or gets loses the other people that's what happened here is exactly what could happen without the technology we have now because of what they were relying on back then so you could perhaps overturn overcorrect to the point where your plane is literally upside down yeah and they were saying in the the quasar book he he mentioned that there are instances where pilots were like i was so sure i was flying right side up but my instrument said I was upside down. So I listened to the instruments and I landed safe and I was right. But I would have sworn my life on it that the instruments are wrong. I know which way I'm going, but that's just your brain. I mean, your brain balance is all based on like liquid. So pressure because you're higher up can affect that. Or if you're whatever's going on weather wise, that we'll get into talking about mm-hmm. like the doldrums, like the way that the wind speed and air pressure is over this area. Does it create some sort of a anomaly in your ear that you're like, no, I know for sure you've had vertigo. You're like, I'm for oh, sure yeah. standing up. There's like Lucille too on the wall, <laughs> like hanging to the wall, like help me. Yeah. I, over the past year have had bouts of vertigo several times and it's it's awful you feel like you're just everything is spinning even when you're you know unless I like lay down then it gets a little better but if one of those things hits and you're in a plane I mean you there's one of two things happens you land or you don't right I was thinking yeah how how bad you feel when you have vertigo and then also it's like also, you're in charge of a plane and five <laughs> planes behind you. So anyway, get it together. And you're like, I'm physically unable to get it together. <laughs> you really are. You, I mean, at least for me, and I've looked up what people do. And most of it is like you lay down until it passes. I mean, I think there's maybe medication if you have it all the time. I, I've taken Dramamine before. But mm-hmm. yeah, some things you just got to wait out. And if it hits when you don't have that luxury you're real screwed. Yeah. Another plane was sent out on a rescue mission to find the planes from Flight 19. It was also lost and never heard from again. A tanker in the area later reported seeing an explosion over the water, but when it reached the site and searched the fiery gasoline spill for survivors, none were found. And that's so 14 went missing in the four planes, and then 13 more were on one of the two rescue planes, which were seaplanes, and one of those two planes just didn't come back. It makes me have, yeah, goosebumps. It's just, 
I I think when we'll get to Soda, what do you think? Like, even if it's, oh, it was uh, a storm or whatever, that's still so many lives lost mm-hmm. by something that you had no control over. And it's weird that something happened. We know something happened by virtue of they didn't come back, but we don't know definitively what that something is. And I think that's why I, I've been, it's been upsetting me. I've been thinking about these guys because it's yeah. so isolated and alone. That Like all his radio transmissions are so sad. Mm-hmm. And the fact that no bodies are ever found and a lot of times no wreckage. And yes, in that area, you know, like the Gulf stream is very powerful and can, take stuff from from one area to the next. In fact, in 2022, there was a documentary made about Flight 19. And when they were searching the ocean in the area, they found a huge chunk of the Challenger. Yeah. And they said, we assumed that NASA had retrieved all of this, but it just goes to show like how large the ocean is, how powerful currents can be, And stuff could be a lot of places that we just don't know. Like, they were shocked that they found this huge piece of the Challenger. But also, it's great because it's a part of history. It also helps, you know, us know, like, more about what what went wrong on that mission and everything. But all that to say, stuff can be a long way away from where you think it's going to be. Right? And if you go, like, how big is this area? Big enough to lose a chunk of a spaceship? That's Mm -hmm. pretty big. (laughs) It's pretty big. Yeah. For however many decades, 30 years? Yeah. Jeez. While Flight 19 put the Bermuda Triangle on the map, so to speak, unexplained incidents around the body of water had been occurring long before that. In an early recorded incident from March of 1918, the Navy suffered the greatest non-combat loss of life in its history with the mysterious disappearance of the USS Cyclops. The USS Cyclops set sail for Baltimore, Maryland from Rio de Janeiro on February 16, 1918. The 504-foot-long, 65-foot-wide Collier ship was carrying 11,000 tons of manganese ore, even though the ship's maximum capacity was 8,000 tons, putting it well over the limit she could safely carry. Still, the vessel sailed on from the United States to Brazil at a rate of 15 knots, carrying its 309 crew members. Oh, don't do that. Don't put all that on there. It's too heavy. It seems like that's not a great idea, especially when it's it's not like uh, you're putting too much weight in a trailer on the highway. This is in water. And when things get too heavy in water, water starts to come over the boat. Yeah, you got, uh, you're about to put, the the delivery is not going to Baltimore. It's going to the ocean floor. (laughs) (laughs) One, two, three, ocean floor way. Wasn't that uh, Mitch Hedberg of, of his paper route? I either have to stop at all the houses or one dumpster. It's like, I either have to drive this all the way to Baltimore or just dump it right here. It's like, <laughs> don't do that. It's the ocean. Please don't dump it. Right. Prior to leaving port in Rio de Janeiro, the captain reported that one of the ship's engines was not working. Additionally, the extra weight the vessel was carrying posed serious concerns. Despite the captain's concerns, the safety board recommended he continue on his plan and make his way to the U.S. for repairs. Just a few days after departing, the Cyclops had to make an unplanned stop at Barbados, 1,800 miles from its intended destination, due to the ship taking on too much water. After Barbados, what happened next is still a mystery. 
Sometime after March 4th, 1918, the USS Cyclops and her entire crew vanished without a trace, never to be heard from again. The only survivor was an officer named Conrad A. Nervig, who disembarked in Rio before the ship sailed on further. According to the U.S. Naval Institute, Nervig wrote a 1969 article for the organization in which he detailed the commanding officer's myriad problems. Nervig wrote that Lieutenant Commander George W. Wardley was a gruff, eccentric, salt of the old school, given to carrying a cane, but possessing very few other cultural attainments. He was a very indifferent seaman and a poor, overly cautious navigator. Unfriendly and taciturn, he was generally disliked by both his officers and men. Sounds like a fun gig. He's just a surly old dude with a cane going, I don't know where we are. Don't go too fast, though. We're not sure where we're going. And you're like, well, there's like 300 of us on this boat and it's huge. So cool. Glad you're in charge. Great. He had enough wherewithal to say, hey, everybody, uh, one of these engines isn't working. It's kind of cracked. And also, we're way over the weight limit. So I'm a little bit concerned. However, they're like, keep going. You'll be fine. Just keep on going. Yeah, if I told you, hey, Christy, I got a cruise. We're going on a cruise together. I got you a ticket. You don't have to pay for it. It's all expenses paid. So nice. The guy driving it, he's a bit of an indifferent seaman, but (laughs) it'll be great. Would you be like, oh, no, thank you. I would like a seaman who is on it. Like someone who's paying attention. only want seamen that are on it. Sharp seamen. We don't want indifferent seamen. You got to have sharp. Well, depends. You don't (laughs) want a sharp seaman in some cases. If it's too sharp, then it'll destroy everything. <laughs> yeah, but it can't be indifferent or, no. I mean, unless sometimes you want an indifferent seaman. If you're In having college, like, I was like, I don't want any seaman that know where they're going. They all got to be indifferent. Eventually, I'm like, all right, now I'd like you to have a little bit more of an idea of where you're headed. You were happy with indifferent seamen that was a poor navigator. Now yes. you want sharp seamen that knows where it's going. Not anymore. I just, no. I did. Two times. I, and we're- I, two times. And now I'm like, you can go back to being indifferent. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the commander even ignored the accidental death of a sailor who drowned after being knocked overboard, which also led to low morale among the other crew. With the ship carrying so much heavy ore, a flammable substance, did it explode due to negligent command and sink deep into the ocean? Can you imagine that your buddy, you're like, Cap, I got to tell you, you know, Ralph fell off the ship and he's like, fuck it. <laughs> what? We'll just be like, We're not turning around. We got places shame. to be. Yeah. Well, that's a shame. You're like, <laughs> can we like look for him? I mean, you're like, turn around. No. no, 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 no. We don't have time for that. Which sends a message. Everybody stay in the middle of the ship. Don't get too close to the edge because nobody's going to give a shit if you go over. Yes. And I guess, uh, you know, probably back then, not everybody had a life jacket, I would imagine. There was probably a couple on board. Maybe you were supposed to, but this guy was like, eh, weights it down. We can put more ore on it if we throw them off. <laughs> right? Grab a, if we start to go down, grab a chunk of ore. It'll float you to the top. Sir, I don't think it, I don't think it will. It's metal, isn't it? <laughs> Just grab it. It's fine. Well, it's grab really hot. Grab to each other. You, t- the two of you can float together. Take turns. A, what do you mean the vessel? Door. <laughs> Sinisterhood will be right back. In January of 1948, a four-engine plane operated by the British South American Airways called Star Tiger had 23 passengers and six crew on board when it went missing after showing no signs of trouble during its flight. When search crews encountered strong waters with 40-foot-high waves, 
They were called back home. Despite over 30 military aircraft searching for it, no wreckage was ever found. And this was like a passenger ship. I mean, a passenger plane, you're not military aircraft, not a training run. I mean, you're bought a ticket. Yeah, you bought a ticket and you didn't get where you thought you were going. Yeah, back then, if you look at the planes that they used to fly that were commercial, it, death traps. Yeah, it was amazing that anybody got where they were going, quite honestly. These types of tragedies are always really hard, too, because for the families, you don't have a body to bury. You mm-hmm. don't even really know what happened. Because nothing's ever found, you still hold on for a while to that glimmer of hope that maybe they're still out there. The chances are very unlikely, but... Until you get like a definitive, okay, we found the wreckage, we've found the bodies, there were no survivors. I think it's human nature to hold out hope. No, I think so. And be like, well, maybe they're on an island or maybe they're, like you said, they've grabbed onto some wreckage and are floating. Mm -hmm. Like as long as we can get out there and help them, then we can save them. But if there are 40 foot waves. Those are big. And that's pretty big. But Mm -hmm. because we're saying this 1948 airplane was a death trap. Do you think, so 1948 was 75 years ago, 75 years from now is 2093, if my calculations are correct, 2098, 2098, I'm having a panic attack now. But if you think in 75 years from now, someone goes, they flew, I'm sorry, you flew in a Boeing 737. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Those things were death traps. And you're like, I don't know, man. It seemed there was TV on the back of the headrest. It seemed fine. Seemed safe at the time. They're like, you mean you didn't just think about where you wanted to go and then all of a sudden you were there? No, we didn't have that technology back then or we would have done it. Yeah, I would not have gotten, I wouldn't have to wait in line to board and walk down a jetway. Mm -mm. I think we've talked before about Wishing we could, like, banks use for the the money yeah. tubes. Just, you know, you go into yeah. a tube, vroom, and then you're wherever you need to be. Tube me, baby. <laughs> Just a few months later, on March 5th, 1948, internationally famous horse jockey Al Snyder and two friends disappeared while on a fishing expedition off the coast of Florida. Eventually, the skiff they had been sailing in was found empty, lodged in the mangrove roots near Rabbit Key, 60 miles north from where they had departed. Despite a massive search with dogs, local guides, planes, and a $15,000 reward, no bodies were ever found. And that's exactly the case here. You talk about loved ones not wanting to give up. His wife was like, no, he's out there. I know he's out there. That's sad. He is out yeah. there, but you're not going to be able to bring him back. No, I think he's he has become one with the ocean in one way or another. Yeah, if a skiff is small enough to get stuck in mangrove roots, it has 0% chance surviving a wave, anything like 40 feet, much less yeah. a 40-foot wave. Mm-hmm. Yet another unexplained disappearance occurred in December of 1948 when an aircraft traveling from Puerto Rico to Miami, carrying people back from visiting Puerto Rico for Christmas, suddenly vanished. When the flight radioed that it would be 10 minutes late as it passed over the Florida Keys, everything appeared to be fine. Then, all of a sudden, nothing. The flight completely disappeared. 30 passengers, two pilots and the crew, and the DC-3 airplane seemingly vanished into thin air, never to be seen again. Search and rescue never located any debris, life jackets, or passenger belongings. Not even a larger-than-average gathering of sharks and barracuda, which are native to the area, was seen. However, no bodies were found in the ocean or washed ashore. 
And this one is disturbing because even if it did crash into the ocean and people were stuck in there, they said, sadly, when we fly over, we see a feeding frenzy of shark and barracuda and you go, okay, well, at least we can tell the families we think that that's what happened. They saw nothing. Mm -hmm. So if they crashed into the ocean... They did it at a time the shark was out of office. <laughs> All the sharks were out of office. Or you go, it crashes so deep that maybe it's, uh, I don't know, how sh- deep can sharks go? I mean, I'm sure there's a limit to, to where certain animals can go. Yeah, but I think the deal is a lot of the stuff floats back up to the surface. So you would, mm. if it even if it crashed so deep, like life jackets or something, things that are buoyant will yeah. still come back up. But what we said earlier, maybe it gets it comes up and gets washed off that fast. Mm-hmm. But yeah, sharks they know no bounds. They probably do. But in my head, they are unstoppable. <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't think that's an unpopular opinion. Although I would say I've been watching a lot of shark videos lately. Ella's very into sharks, and I have learned. That they are, they get a bad rap. Yeah, I mean, they're they're they can attack you for sure, but it happens very rare that they attack humans, and um, they're extremely important to the ecosystem and the circle of life and everything. I feel like sharks about how we feel about the ocean and space. I'm not trying to fuck with it. It's great. Right. We need it. It's doing its thing. Let's not destroy it. But just don't go up and poking and get messing with it, or you might get got. I don't need to mess around with a shark to respect it. I respect it from a safe distance. Exactly. I can respect it from afar. Mm-hmm. A tanker ship leaving from Beaumont, Texas and bound for Norfolk, Virginia, was last heard from on February 3, 1963. According to a naval report, the ship, called the USS Marine Sulphur Queen, was carrying 15,000 long tons of molten sulfur contained in four metal tanks each heated to 275 degrees Fahrenheit by a network of coils connected to two boilers. I can barely drive my crossover SUV with a grocery load in the back of my car, much less 275 degree heated four metal tanks of 15,000 tons of molten sulfur. You're driving a volcano around. The stress of driving that is, I can't, it's not something, I get stressed driving just, from here to the grocery store with traffic. Like if I had a volcano in my back seat, absolutely not. And you're not even on land. Also, it's in the ocean. You're like, yeah. no, I'm not taking the deal. Not no doing deal. it. Mm-mm. It's brave, man. It's brave to do this shit. It's it is crazy. very brave. Yeah. With 39 men on board, the ship made a routine radio call identifying its position, putting the vessel near Key West, Florida. That was the last time the ship checked in. Rescue crews were deployed and three days later, all Coast Guard searchers found was a single life jacket floating alone in the open waters, 40 miles southwest of where the ship was last seen. There have never been any other signs of her or her crew. Man, what Whoa. if one guy jumped off and everybody else it took them all down, but then the shark got him and spit that, his life jacket out? That, that life jacket floating alone. No. Yeah, that's real eerie. It's like a... Uh, the video I showed you of our camping trip this weekend at the lake and a lot of beach balls were taken for the children and the wind blew all of them out to the middle of the lake. <laughs> <laughs> so you just saw these tiny little dots. They would just keep getting further and further away. Like, Bye, beach ball. We mm-hmm. love you. Even with the increased attention on the area, the name Bermuda Triangle did not appear in print until 1952. 
writer George X. Sand used the term in an article called See Mystery at Our Back Door in Fate Magazine, writing of A series of strange disappearances, leaving no trace whatever, have taken place in the past few years right at the back doorstep of the United States. All involving a watery triangle measuring less than a thousand miles on any one side. In 1964, Vincent Gaddis published an article in Argosy magazine tying the area to strange phenomena, calling it the deadly Bermuda Triangle. And, you know, growing up, we talked about how as a kid, we're like, oh, my gosh, it's so dangerous to go over there. Yeah. <laughs> but people go over there all the time. But I always had wondered, and it wasn't until, you know, we talk about it on the show and learn it where that term originated from and because there have been instances for you know dating back to columbus all the way up to present day i was like well who even decided to name it that and it's just what a deal that you're the guy that you're like i called it the deadly bermuda triangle people have dropped the deadly but it's still there <laughs> yeah it's true we fly over it all the time i'm sure we've all flown over it or been at a boat or something near it we don't hear about all the flights and boats that make it out safely we tend to focus on the ones that don't, but millions of, of vessels of various kinds have passed through these waters unharmed. However, it only takes a couple real bad things to get the name the Deadly Bermuda Triangle. Right, you get that reputation. But there, I think there are people that do celebrate when planes land, and it's the people that clap when you hit the runway. Those people. <laughs> Those are the heroes that are like, oh, no one on the flight. Yeah. You're on yeah. the flight and you touch down. They're like, all right, let's give it up for the pilot. Yeah. And unless it was a harrowing flight that involved like lightning hitting the plane and like wind and rain. I mean, yeah, it's good. It's great that they did that, but aren't they just doing their job? It's true. Like, do, it's do we clap when our servers bring our food to the table? After heart surgery, I might clap. And I feel like that's up there. I'd be like, thank you, doc. <laughs> thank you got you it. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Everything's good. If it, yeah, if it's something like that, I might go, I'll clap. Now, land in a plane, that's a little bit more. I feel like pilots are like, we got this. We're chill. We don't need you to clap. I might be wrong. We might get a lot of DMs from pilots who are like, I live for those applauses. Like Lady Gaga, I live for the applause. <laughs> If you do, let us know so we can get that clap started. We'll get the slow clap started. Every time. Descent. Wheels come out. <laughs> and then we just speed it up Ramp until it up. eventually everybody's hooting and hollering. I'm going to be like, it's happening. It's happening. As the plane starts to go down, it'll be great. Everyone will love yeah. it. I won't be on the news. I won't be arrested. No, and no one will be scared. Everyone will be excited. They'll love me. They'll give me little wings like the children in the cockpit. <laughs> You'll get to take a tour of the cockpit. <laughs> and probably the local jail. <laughs> a decade later, Charles Berlitz published the book titled The Bermuda Triangle, a best-selling discussion on the region's mysterious happenings, forever connecting the Bermuda Triangle with the unexplained. That same year, military writer Howard L. Rosenberg calculated that it is of 1974, more than 50 ships and 20 aircraft sailed into oblivion in the deadly area of ocean. Well, I was thinking about this too. It, let's just take flight 19, for instance, because that was before the Bermuda Triangle was like a thing. But if you read a newspaper article that said 27 sailors are missing and we don't know where they are and it's not at war, it's non-combat, it was just practice runs. That gets your attention because initially oh, yeah. I was like, oh, that happened in Florida. It must have been a very local story. It's like, no, it was people heard about it because it was That's so a, Yeah. 
I mean, today, if we heard that, it would be a huge thing all over the news. Even, I mean, any anybody, any vessel that goes missing and there's no indication of where it could be is going to make headlines. Well, yeah. it's just like that Malaysia Airlines 370 thing we watched on Netflix mm-hmm. when we were on uh, in Oregon. That's it's they still don't really know what, where all the pieces are. You know, we have theories and different things, but show goes to show that. I mean, it's not just a little bit of news. I mean, it's international mystery that we're all still talking about 75 years later. Yeah. And this is the book that I uh, did hey. my report on. Yeah. Shout nice. out to Charles Burlitz. Thank you so much. Nice. So what makes this area of ocean more treacherous than any others? Or is that even the case? The doldrums or the intertropical convergence zone, ITCZ, pronounced and sometimes referred to as the itch, is an area where the prevailing trade winds of the northern hemisphere blow to the southwest and collide with the southern hemisphere's driving northwest trade winds, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, or NOAA. The governmental agency explains. Due to intense solar heating near the equator, the warm, moist air is forced up into the atmosphere like a hot air balloon. As the air rises, it cools, causing persistent bands of showers and storms around the Earth's midsection. The rising air mass finally subsides in what is known as the horse latitudes, where the air moves downward toward the Earth's surface. Because the air circulates in an upward direction, there's often little surface wind in the itch. That is why sailors well know that the area can be calm sailing ships for weeks, and that's why they call it the doldrums. If you watch a current day vessel, which they filmed it for like uh, History Channel has a couple of different series on the Bermuda Triangle. One is hosted by Zachary Quinto. Would recommend. He's a great narrator. Oh, yeah. But they show a ship, you know, a dinghy, like a pretty small ship sitting there that in the ocean you would think you would be tossed asunder or moving around or whatever. And it is freakishly calm and still like Mm -hmm. a pool disturbing like the calm before the storm (sighs) like a uh uh, a hurricane or a tornado when they you know everything gets real calm or the eye of the hurricane is the calmest part until it's not anymore right till it runs over you that the calm Mm -hmm. before the kraken i was in a hurricane where the eye passed over in fort lauderdale when i lived in fort lauderdale and it was all calm for a moment yeah, until and it goes shit away. Gets, <laughs> shit. It was it was wild. Had to shove the couch in front of the front door so the front door didn't blow open. Didn't Jeez. have power for weeks. Yeah, it was a bad but one. When we in Baton Rouge during Katrina, we went out during the eye, but it had really subsided after it got that far inland. So it was like pretty calm, and then it just rained afterwards. But being in Florida, I would be terrified. When we were in Tampa on that boat ride, I was like, "What did you do when you lived here?" And you're like, "You just like." close your windows like and hope for the best (laughs) yeah i mean the thing with hurricanes is you have a couple days notice before shit's gonna go sideways however if you don't have anywhere to go and you you can't leave you're still gonna batten down the hatches and just hope for the best (laughs) sinisterhood will be right back older ships reliant on the wind for power caught in the doldrums would find themselves trapped facing severe dehydration, delusions, and eventually death. One of these areas occurs within the Bermuda Triangle. And if you're stuck and you can't move and you're like, well, a wind will come soon. I mean, at some point you're going to like lose track of days. You run out mm-hmm. of food. You're like, well, might as well just drink ocean water because it's all that's there. Don't do and that. And we know what happens when you do that. Yes, it's uh, don't drink ocean water. We all think, oh, there's all this water we can drink. It will cause 
extreme dehydration, delusions, delirium, all sorts of problems. I remember reading, it was a, it was a, I can't remember which boat it was or a ship that sank, but it was a horrible one. And there were a lot of sharks and a lot of the men on board, it was just like a feeding frenzy. But because they were taking in so much salt water, I remember reading how a couple of them were like, oh, if we swim down, there's there's help down there because they were just completely hallucinating. And others were like, no, there's not. That's not a thing. And they're like, no, there's there's help. There's There's people down there that can help us. And they just swam down and didn't swim back up. He's like, Triton, the sea king. I saw it in yeah. a movie once. He's down mm-hmm. there with his daughters and they can all sing. That's horrible because you think yeah. you're so convinced. It's almost like when you have vertigo, you're so convinced that that's the right thing to do, that there's no reasoning with it. When someone's in a moment of psychosis due to physiological factors, you can't like yeah. reason with them and be like, no. I think probably the only time you should like drink ocean water, if it's from Sonic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Route yeah. 44 ocean water, good stuff. I'm, or I'm, if you got one of those straws. Yeah, life straws. Life straws? I think Do those that work works. on ocean water? I know it works on river water with that could have bacteria in it. I'm not sure if it works on ocean water. I should check before I tell Paris, like, we're stuck on a boat somewhere. I'm like, yeah, babe, take a suck <laughs> out of the ocean. You'll be fine. <laughs> I think there's some sort of a filtration you can do because I think some far off islands, that's they've figured out ways how to mm-hmm. do that to, mm-hmm. to have drinking water. But, yeah, drinking any kind of salt water when you, like, fall in the ocean or a wave hits you and it gets all in your nose and mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another possible way for boats to become trapped is from deposits of algae called sargassum that can gather in the area. As the algae rots and the sailors remain trapped, the gases combined with severe dehydration can cause delirium. And this is like these huge, and they're saying global warming, climate change is causing more of these to happen. But of course, now you would think you have more sophisticated instrumentation to like navigate around them. But if you your motor or if you're a sailboat and you're in the doldrums and in sargassum weed, you're donezo and you yeah. just sit there and i guess accept your fate hope that somebody comes by to rescue you your instruments work if a bunch of weeds get all tangled up in your engine and i mean there's not much you can do no and that stuff especially when it starts to rot gives off this like nasty odor and then which already is gonna i'm out i'm tapping out <laughs> But if it's you're, it's around you, you can't even get really fresh air because there's no mm-hmm. wind that's really blowing by. It's uh, it's one of the most used shipping areas. And Godspeed, everybody that has to ship through that because it's yeah. every single thing we read. It's just like, and this horrible thing could happen. Also this at the same time. It's truly a very heroic industry to work in. The BBC series, The Bermuda Triangle Enigma. Analyzed data and discovered that conditions in the area could cause waves upwards of 50 feet high that exert more pressure than even the strongest ships would have trouble withstanding. Footage of some of these monster waves made its way to the internet in 2018, when the Norwegian Cruise Line's Norwegian Pearl ship ventured into the Bermuda Triangle after missing Tropical Storm Alex. Footage from passengers on board show 40-foot waves that made it to the ship's 13th floor. Though the modern-day cruise ship made it through with no more trouble than a closed pool, more archaic ships could not have withstood the violent pressure from those enormous walls of water. Shout out to the people on the boat who stood up next to the window with their cameras and phones and filmed this because I was in the living room watching it going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And Paris goes, what are you watching? And I was like, I'm watching this 
cruise ship about to get fucking wrecked by yeah. two waves. I would have been in the bathtub. I don't know if they have. No, they don't. I think they just have showers. I've been on cruises. I would have been in the shower in the bathroom, hunkered down for my life. I also would be violently ill. Yeah, you can see. I mean, the bow dips so mm -mm. deep. And my whole nope. brain was like, the deeper the dip, the higher the wave. And it looked like the fucking perfect storm. I mean, it deep dips down in there. And they were, at first, they were on the ninth floor where their rooms are. And so there's footage from it just washing over the ninth floor. <laughs> and they're like, this would be me too. They were like, let's go on the observation deck. I'm like, yeah, that's a plus. <laughs> but it made sense because you're on the 13th floor. You're pretty much like the highest point on the ship. But then the water is splashing as high, up as high as those windows. And that is- no massive it's massive yeah it's it's one of the worst case scenarios for me personally i can think of just my own personal hell yeah being stuck like wobbling back and forth yeah just motion sick but also like we're probably not gonna make it out of this cruise ships though are they're like floating hotels they're huge even with this type of stuff i mean you're definitely 100 percent gonna feel this but you can go through pretty you know fairly rocky waters and it's not going to be that damaging, but coming up 13 floors. No. Yeah, it was. I mean, in the, the people that were filming it, one lady was kind of sitting down like, oh, I'm not loving this. But everybody to the Norwegian Cruise Line's credit, it seemed like a sturdy ship and it didn't seem like at any point they were screaming dramatic. Of course, they play alerts over the broadcast system like, please sit down, like secure yourselves, like <laughs> beep, 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 beep. And they're like filming the thing beeping and they're like, let's go upstairs. <laughs> so like, yeah. yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Hexagonal-shaped clouds over the area in the mid-Atlantic could hold a key to the weather there. The Science Channel's What on Earth series investigated the triangle and determined the shape of those clouds led to the formation of microbursts, also known as rain bombs, which could be responsible for some of the disappearances. Dr. Randy Cervini of Arizona State University told the Science Channel, these types of hexagonal shapes over the ocean are, in essence, air bombs. They're formed by what are called microbursts. They're blasts of air that come down out of the bottom of the clouds and hit the ocean. And they create waves that can sometimes be massive in size once they start to interact with each other. Sounds like something out of a mythological story, but it's not. It's it's fair. All of this is true. What's crazy, and this is going to sound like I'm stoned, but I'm not, <laughs> is... When you think of all of the stuff the planet does, because that's just what it does, because it's just gas and and dust and shit. We're just we got to be respectful of, of it all because it's not going to change. That's what it does. We got to figure out how to live with it. Don't yeah, be think, so cocky that you think you can deal, go through a rain bomb and come out the other side unscathed. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head at no point if it's a did the if the fight is between man and nature my money's on nature every time every time, every time. Every because time. nature doesn't have the hubris of i can beat you nature exists and does and is mm -hmm. and we think we can oh i'm gonna try this i'm gonna do that and like you said a rain bomb doesn't give a fuck about your feelings or what you're trying to do or whatever you think you can do to navigate around it. Can we adapt to nature? Certainly. I think we've done well to do that. But you're right. I'm not trying to poke this bear of nature and say, well, I'm better than you and smarter than you. I could just go. No, no, no. We have to respect the earth because, as you said, it just goes on. It does not. And to me, I find that very uh, kind of relief. It's like a relief, right? It's relaxing. Uh -huh. Like, oh, 
it's in the grand scheme of things. Like the earth will spin on without me. That's fine. I'll do whatever I can do here and, you know, try my best every day. But yeah, when you start to get real, not to get back to the moon stuff, because that's all our tour. But when, you, you know, I start to get real down in the nitty gritty or stressed out or whatever, I'm like, ah, the world's so big, right? Like it's, this <laughs> matters to me. Right. Like, what are we? God, the guy at Snap Kitchen. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> tell you. I ran by to get a lunch one day and then I, we were talking. He's like, oh, we have new bowls that are going to be uh, 30% more protein than the FDA recommends. And I go, what does the FDA know? That's just a recommendation. He goes, yeah, it's true. It's all made up. I said, everything's made up. He goes, the IRS I said time, gender. He was like money. I said, all this, everything's fake. He was like, yeah. So not much to get worried about, huh? I said, nope. <laughs> Have a good day. Uh, <laughs> <She> walked out. <laughs> Which snap kitchen is this? Because I'm going. He's awesome. It was uh, Skillman and Mockingbird, I guess. Okay. That's the one we go to. So yeah, I, was, I needed I a quick lunch. Guy. I was out on the run. I needed a quick lunch. And I was like, I this love sounds snap good. kitchen. But yeah, you really feel like it. The it's so massive. The planet's so massive. And talking about like with the moon, you know, from that perspective, you put your thumb over the earth. That's yeah. how little we are and small we are in the grand scheme of things. So don't fuck. With microbursts. It's also hard to get mad at nature because it's just doing its thing. It's not personal. It's just yeah. trying to survive and thrive like we all are. But the difference is nature doesn't have an agenda. It's just there doing its thing. It doesn't have a, it's not targeting, you know, certain people or communities or anything. It just is. It just is, right? It's just like, this is where I do my microbursts. You're welcome mm -hmm. to fly through here. You're welcome to sail through here. I'm not responsible for what happens. And I'm we have to burst, go. though, and you can't get mad when I burst. <laughs> we gave you warning. If we burst <laughs> after we told you we were fixing a burst, that's on you for not listening. Mm -hmm. NBC meteorologist Kevin Corvo disagreed, telling the outlet, When I look at a hexagonal cloud shape in the Bahamas, this is not the cloud signature of what a microburst looks like. You would normally have one large to extremely large thunderstorm that wouldn't have an opening in the middle. So, if not a microburst, what else could it be? Thick clouds, strong winds, and precipitation can all contribute to pilots becoming disoriented while in the air. Modern aircraft are outfitted with more sophisticated technology that can help pilots maintain their location and anticipate bad weather. Older aircraft weren't so equipped and may have simply been lost due to unexpected weather events and a lack of technology to navigate around them. The Bermuda Triangle is arguably the most famous of the 12 so-called bile vortices, identified by biologist and writer Ivan T. Sanderson. According to Marine Insight magazine, Vile vortices are areas on the Earth's surface which have naturally occurring anomalies due to the planet's natural electromagnetic fields being stronger in these parts than anywhere else in the world. The Bermuda Triangle, along with the 11 other vortices, are spread evenly across the Earth's surface, comprising a 20-sided polyhedron. These areas represent wrinkles in the fabric of space-time, allowing for aircraft to get lost or to zip through from one side to the other arriving at their destinations and possibly early. And Ivan Sanderson thought actually it was bigger than a triangle and he kept calling it a lozenge shape, but almost more geometric uh, gemstone kind of shape. But he thought like it a, could- Like a sucrets? Like a sucrets, yeah. He's like, it's, it's more of a ludens, less of a halls. <laughs> <laughs> I love a sucrets. Those cherry ones in the tins, when I was Dude. little, I would eat those like candy. They were so fucking good. 
We're a Ludens family. I've been sucking on Ludens Ooh. recently. I like a Ludens. It doesn't mm-hmm. do anything medically. It's essentially candy. <laughs> <laughs> but if they sell it in the lozenge aisle, I think I'm allowed to have as many as I want. Yeah. But no, he thought it was much bigger and that it stretched down from this area in the Caribbean all the way up either to Norfolk, Virginia or like New Jersey or somewhere up along the East Coast. So he thought these incidents happen not just in this small area that we've outlined, but in fact, this whole area is one of the vile vortices where... I guess the it's a wrinkle in time and you can, if you're saying, okay, we're flying and we'll get back, you know, like when that plane called and said, oh, we're going to be 10 minutes late, it would land in 30 seconds and be like, oh, I just talked to you 10 minutes ago. And you're like, no, you talked to me 30 seconds ago. Kind of like our Freaky Friday story where mm-hmm. the sisters were coming from the Ohio State University mm-hmm. and we're like, well, you were right behind me. It's like, no, I wasn't. That's what Ivan Sanderson put forth as these vile vortices. Kind of like interstellar, too, where things yes. age depending on where you are to what might take you seven minutes on this planet back on Earth. 25 years has gone by. That blew my mind. The whole man, the whole movie. But when he and when he's kind of like behind the room and, and stuck back in there trying to you know make contact through each of the different rooms in space time, that is what I think Ivan Sanderson's theory is is that it these planes aren't lost they're just stuck in another area of reality that we can't see Mm -hmm. as soon as the triangle got its name and reputation people were eager to label the cause of its happenings supernatural richard weiner produced a tv film documentary on the area in the mid-1970s and seemed to agree with sanderson's hypothesis on space-time according to weiner the missing ships and planes are still there only in a different dimension as a result of a magnetic phenomenon that could have been set up by a UFO. Others posit the leftover technology from the lost mythical continent of Atlantis could have something to do with the magnetic problems ships and planes encounter. And yeah, if it's all around that area, it's like another pole or something that we don't know about. Or he, Weiner thought it was UFOs. I think Sanderson thought it was just how the earth is. So Weiner thinks that extraterrestrials have planted some sort of magnetic field in the ocean to be able to control ships and boats to perhaps get them to their universe. Yeah. Or maybe it's like a wormhole. You started a, mm-hmm. it's like the two, our tube system that we discussed. That's like yeah. a jumping off point to the tube. You get in the tube there, but there's no return yet. yet. Yeah. That's the problem. If you go up in the tube, you want to come back down. Yeah, you don't want to send off your driver's license and the bank keeps it. You want it no. to come, you you gotta, come back. You expect to get it back, yeah. Sinisterhood will be right back. The most mysterious explanation of all may also be the most plausible. In a 1974 article on the loss of Flight 19, Howard L. Rosenberg wrote, If the planes were flying through a magnetic storm, all compasses could possibly malfunction. Actually, man's knowledge of magnetism is limited. We know how to live with it and escape it by going into space, but we really don't know what exactly it is. That form of thinking may sound antiquated now, but in fact, in 2023, our understanding of magnets isn't much clearer. Live Science magazine quoted Gerald Walker, a physics professor at Cleveland State University, who explained that two important aspects of magnetism remain unexplained. One, why magnets always have a north and south pole, and two, why particles emit magnetic fields in the first place. He told the outlet, 
We just observe that when you make a charged particle move, it creates a magnetic field and two poles. We don't really know why. It's just a feature of the universe, and the mathematical explanations are just attempts of getting through the homework assignment of nature and getting the answers. Given our incomplete knowledge of magnets, whatever phenomenon may have caused the malfunction of the instruments on the aircraft of Flight 19 could also have contributed to the mysterious disappearances of other aircraft and ships in the area. Trying to explain magnets is like me trying to explain how mirrors work. (laughs) Magnets, mirrors, black holes, any of that. I'm like... And so much of this, though, when you think about it, like we were just saying, everything's made up. But so many things we just accept as truth. But also, we're like, yeah, this happens. We don't really know why, but we're all just going to, you know, we all know what happens. Why? We can't say, but we're still going to just <laughs> acknowledge that it happens. What do you do? You're kind of stuck between a, a spaceship and the Atlantic. Am I right? <laughs> Exactly. You're stuck between a, a UFO and a giant magnet in the ocean. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's you're exactly right. Like the Pythagorean theorem, we all know A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Two uh, high school students in New Orleans recently just wrote a proof that it's like being, you know, analyzed by other scholars, but that like we knew that A squared plus B squared equals C squared, but we couldn't explain why. And now all these years later, they're they think they have ex- been able to explain why. So we would arguably need something similar with this magnet situation. I'm like, listen, the shit just sticks. I don't know. Stop asking. <laughs> Stop asking this. I don't know. You look in a mirror, you get to see yourself back. I don't know how it works. It just happens. Kudos to those two high school students who are doing the work because Dude. I was just smoking weed in high school. I wasn't doing anything that helped anybody. I was and like, this hey, can you- is incredible. <laughs> Can you download a game onto my TI-83 calculator so I can play games during class? Uh, and I had a TI-85. Like, Thank you very much. Whoa, and thanks, I Mike. had Tetris. Damn. Snake. Yeah. You could also program in answers and formulas to your test. See, then, I didn't deserve to do that because I didn't know how. Yeah. Well, my best friend taught me. So <laughs> she was very smart. Much smarter than me. Shout out to Julia. Thanks, Julia, for helping. Thanks, Julia. Oh, Julia was the best. We lived next door to each other. She was great. She was like, when I would get in trouble, which happened a lot, she was like the one friend that my parents were like, but you can still hang out with Julia because she was a good influence and uh, (laughs) a positive person. Uh, I do feel like I was that kid in other kids' lives of like, Heather's cool. She's not going to do anything illegal or fun. She's going to be like... Do you want to put boobs in the calculator upside down? <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> with my my size Barbie. <laughs> yeah. Let's do that instead. The official word from the government is that nothing supernatural is to blame. The National Ocean Service, a sub-agency of NOAA, conveyed Uncle Sam's official stance, saying, The U.S. Navy and U.S. Coast Guard contend that there are no supernatural explanations for disasters at sea. Their experience suggests that the combined forces of nature and human fallibility outdo even the most incredulous science fiction. Historian David O'Keefe told Newsweek in 2020 that while science now has a better understanding of the area referred to as the Bermuda Triangle, strange and unexplained happenings still occur. As far as the data suggests, sinkings and aircraft losses continue. However, now that we have a better understanding of the area, the sensationalism attached seems to have simmered down, at least for the time being, that is. 
Either way, it remains one of the world's great curiosities that still captures the imagination of young and old alike. So what do we think? Well, a lot. the problem I think here is that it's just such a frequently traversed area that even if you have a uh, hundred incidents and 99 of them are explicable, if there's still one that's inexplicable, I think it's worthwhile to look into what that one thing is because I think that's how the Atlantis or the Kraken or the aliens get you is that they want you to rely on statistics that like most of the time it's pilots getting disoriented. It's poor seamanship that they've overloaded their vessel. They're indifferent seamen. They were letting people <laughs> fall over the edge. Like when you see some cases where at the time it was called mysterious and then later they've analyzed it and said, well, most likely it's this. I think that's fair and write those off. But I think for some of them, especially like flight 19, where there were five aircraft and then a sixth rescue aircraft that was even bigger that carried 13. That was a float plane that in theory, even if you were, well, we ran out of fuel, you would still be able to float somewhere. The, something like that, that still sticks with me 75 years later because it is so inexplicable and we would be, should be concerned about what caused it. It's very strange that no wreckage debris bodies were ever found to, to have that much destruction in a kind of, you know, maybe a similar area and nothing was found is very bizarre. And even 75 years later, still nothing is found. You know I mean? It's not like, okay, well, the currents carried it a thousand miles away and we just happened to be diving for something else and found it like with the Challenger stuff. Is it out there somewhere? Maybe, maybe it's up there somewhere right maybe it's in another space-time direction people have looked the history channel looked with zachary quinto there's another person and they're like oh well there's really thick mangrove roots like what the uh horse jockey's boat was caught al snyder's boat was caught in so you know did the plane go down so deeply into these roots and then if you're just visually checking you're not going to see it but they've i mean they've pulled out like sonar material they've they went physically went there and looked down in there and i think you would still see some sign of it granted there's an area that's over in there that's super deep and it's like ten thousand feet less deep than the mariana trench but that's still very deep like the mariana mm -hmm. trench is like thirty six thousand feet deep this is like mm -hmm. twenty seven thousand feet deep that's still so fucking deep so mm -hmm. you're right i think if there's ocean currents and waves and there was stuff and it does just eventually rot and sink and become part of the ocean it could very well mean we send a you know little submarine drone rover whatever down there and go oh yeah there's that and there's that one and there's those pieces that's what we need to do we watched that documentary where they sent a drone down into the marianas trench yeah. so we have the technology send it down into the area you're talking about and what if it's just a watery graveyard for all of these things and just the way the currents and stuff work and the depths of the ocean, it kind of is a catch all and all sorts mm. of things are answered. You like open the door down there and they're like, Hey, get out of here. It's Atlantis. We've been, we've been hanging out. Like we're fine down here. We don't want to go back. You <laughs> Those go guys from the plane. shipwreck with the sharks are down there. They weren't wrong. I, I like to think that that's everybody's hanging out and it's fine. Sadly, I don't think that's the case. It is, I think a lot of it can be explained by archaic technology, weather, things like that. The ocean is fucking huge. It is still bizarre and eerie to think that so many of these things, are, it just is like they vanished into thin air and there's nothing ever recovered. 
I agree. And that's the sad part is, and I think why it's an enduring mystery because your family wants to know what happened. Mm -hmm. We as citizens want to know what happened. And it is hard to admit that with either flight 19 or with some of the mariners that were out there, if you let your cockiness, confidence get in the way and you either ignore your instrument panel or you're saying, I'm so disoriented. I have to rely on my instruments and there's some type of malfunction, which in you, I did not know this until reading about the Bermuda Triangle and then have to, I had to call Tim because I was like, I try to look up Reddit, explain it like I'm five and I still don't <laughs> understand this. But difference in true north where like the North Pole and the South Pole stick through the earth and then whatever magnetic north is, which is shifts and is ba- it's a place and he goes, I don't know, it's a place in Canada, but it like, I don't either. But it's this, what your compass points to is not exactly like true north, depending on where you are. There are certain areas that north on your compass is actually north, but for other areas, you have to adjust it. And 10, even 10 or 20 degrees, they said difference between what your compass is saying is north and what is actually north. And if you go 10 to 20 degrees in the wrong direction for 140 miles an hour, that's enough time to get completely turned around. And then mm-hmm. by the time you figure out, oh, shit, I was I didn't adjust my compass or whatever. That's enough time to be like, and now I've run out of fuel and I cannot safely land this in an ocean with massive waves or giant rotting sargassum like algae. Right. And sometimes human error is the scariest explanation of all because it can happen to anybody. And it's also one of those things where you're like, shit, this kind of was preventable and we just didn't know enough to do it, which adds to the sadness of, oh man, if if it had just been like 10 degrees the other way, then none of this would have happened. Right. And that's why I asked him, I go, what do you think happened in a situation like that? And it's what we talked about earlier. When you're in a command and you're flying in a formation, you don't do your own calculations, your own headings. You fly in reference to the the aircraft around you because for safety, like you have to, and this isn't like super close flying, like you would see in a, you know, a really cool blue angel show or whatever Thunderbird show, but it flying that close. He told me about an incident with the Thunderbirds where they were flying 18 inches away from each other. That's so close. And one, one single pilot made a mistake and Mm. all of the, it caused an accident because all they do is work off the other flight, but it shows you how precious that is and how, fucking hard it is to be any kind of pilot much less like a military pilot much less like an f-18 or like a fighter pilot because it requires so much precision and focus and you can't shift your focus for even a second because if you do you've just crashed you know six airplanes and nobody most people don't survive that yeah i would imagine um a bunch of thunderbird planes crashing into each other it's not like a wreck on the ground planes crashing is usually that's the end of that that's yeah. horrifying too, especially if it's like an air show and lots of people are watching and stuff. Yeah. yeah. But it's it, like watching all those, The we watched the Artemis 2 crew be announced and the four astronauts that are about to go up and they're going to do like a moonshot and go orbit around the moon. Just hearing some of the, the pilot's credentials and stuff, it was like, he's a test pilot and he flies 40 type of aircraft and the most trained, most amazing person can still have a sinus infection can still yeah. have a bad day can still have, you know, and you think that you're like, this is the cream, cream, cream of the crop, like absolute best. And we're still fallible because we're humans. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Which is when the robots come in. <laughs> it all the, goes back to AI, doesn't it? I, I think it does. I believe I just saw the white house tweeted today that they want an AI bill of rights. So we'll, 
maybe ask AI to write that and see what oh, it was. Oh, okay. All right. Well, involved. pretty soon we'll have an AI president. So <laughs> let's see how that goes. Couldn't yeah, go much worse than we've been doing. So maybe it'd be an upswing. <laughs> For the past, yeah, AI's like, uh, my face will look like whatever you want it to look like. Just type the request in. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're doing. Yeah. Well, speaking of that's what we're doing, doing what are we doing in just about a week now? Well. Oh, God, no. Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. Did somebody say, did somebody say a week? Hi, McGraw. Hi, Christy. (laughs) Hi, McGraw. (laughs) I've been thinking about you. Have you? Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Well, I don't know if y'all can uh, hear that. That's our friend McGruff, the crime dog-ish. Maybe not for legal purposes. His name is Sherlock Bones. <laughs> I don't think he's a crime dog anymore. He's a different kind of dog now. I'm a horned dog. <laughs> you are McGruff, yeah. the horned dog. <laughs> and once said it sound, he sounds like a demented cookie monster. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, that's about right. He wants a cookie. I want your cookie. Oh, God. Tommy is... He is a little upset with you, McGruff, I have to say. We're beefing. Yeah, you guys are beefing. And we're about to go on tour. And now it's been decided you're coming with us. So I'm a little concerned about you and Tommy getting along. You shouldn't be concerned. I'll get rid of him. <laughs> oh, I don't want that. I don't. E- hey, I don't either. Nobody asked me. <laughs> yeah, Heather and I don't want that. Not only is he my husband and the father of my children, but he's also a producer. So it's really going to screw us if you take him out. He's a friend of mine. I don't want anything to happen to him. <laughs> well, we can do this amicably then. Oh, God. I'll draw up the papers. McGruff can't. You can come well, on tour, though. You can come okay. on tour. Denver. We're going to be in Denver on April 19th. And then we're going to be in Salt Lake City on April 20th. And then just a few short days later, we'll be in Austin, Texas, April 27th. And then we're going to be in Houston, May 3rd. Hell yeah. Let's do this. <laughs> Are you ready? Are you ready for this, McGruff? Yes. I've been looking online for some, uh, you know, leisure wear because I feel like <laughs> this is very formal. This trench coat and these very nice plaid pants and my fine boots. I'm going to uh, take the suggestion from the live stream and get some Crocs. And oh. then... Uh, maybe like a nice leisure outfit to wear. Although I hear it's going to be cold in Salt Lake. Yeah, you might want your trench coat. May I make a suggestion? Yes. We sell um toddler shirts and even onesies. I don't know what size you what? are. What? But maybe you get a Sinisterhood shirt and it's and you you rep the show. I'm a grown dog. I'm not going to wear a onesie, but <laughs> I'll check out the t-shirt because I want you to know I'm supportive. Thank you. Well, onesies, somebody's got to snap that down there, you know? So I thought you might be into that. Maybe unsnap it. God. God, he's such a horn dog. Well, where can they go to find more information? You can get links to new... Oh, wait, shit. We have something to announce today. Oh, what is it? Oh, my gosh, McGruff, we do. May I announce it? Sure. (laughs) Well... I know we've told you all that we are going to have new cities. We have them. We've announced them already. They're on Sinisterhood.com slash live shows. We're coming to Boston on July 19th, Brooklyn, July 20th, Washington, D.C., July 22nd, Detroit, August 15th, 
Columbus on August 16th and Pittsburgh on August 17th. Those tickets have not gone on sale yet, but they are going on sale this week. So if you want to get first dibs because VIP has been selling out in all the cities, but if you want to get your chance to do a 45 minute post-show Q&A with us and McGruff where you can ask him questions too, we'll all hang he'll out. He'll be there. <laughs> oh, oh, he's nodding. Yes, he'll be there. Uh, you can go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash sinisterhood or go to our website and click Patreon and join and you'll be the first no, the alert to get tickets. We'll put the ticket links on Patreon first. We'll give you all a secret code so that you can get first dibs to tickets on Thursday, April 6th, and then Friday, April 7th, is when the tickets go on sale for the general public. So if you're listening to this April 7th or beyond, go to sinisterhood.com slash live shows and get your tickets now. But if you got to be, you don't want to miss out on the VIP in all of our new cities, go to patreon.com slash sinisterhood, sign up at the Ruling the Airwaves tier and above, and you will get all the alerts, the first alerts for all the ticket links. Also, if you sign up at the Ruling the Airwaves tier or above, you're going to get to hear this month's mini-sode, which is all about McGruff. And there's a video component that's going to be posted soon. And is it worth it? Absolutely. A lot of people have said that they thought it was very funny. And I just want to say, ouch, because those are my <laughs> real feelings. And yes, I like woman on top. I'm allowed to like that. I don't know why people laughed. You're allowed to like whatever you want. I, I, oh, you getting a little pet from Heather? I, yeah. I gave him a little pet. He's, he was sad. He's been sad since you left. Ever since you left on Friday, he's just been, he was face down in your chair for a while and then he was laid back dramatically. Every time I walked by, he was in a different position. I've been coping in my own way. Well, we'll be together again soon. Yeah, but also, Tommy will be there too, McGruff. So you're going to have to. Gonna have to tone it down, maybe. Oh no! I'll be professional. I can be professional, <laughs> but I don't, don't know worry. if Tommy can. Well, that's on y'all. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> it's on us. <laughs> Thanks. Well, McGruff, we'll see you. Uh, well, you live in my house with me, but the <laughs> listeners will see you on the road, and uh, maybe in some leisure wear. We'll have to see. Get you some Crocs. I can't wait for this. Uh, for all the places that will be, go to sinisterhood.com slash live shows and get your tickets because we're probably coming to a city near you. And if not, maybe we will come there someday. Yeah, absolutely. We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost. So if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating this show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Rolling the Airwaves and Getting Into It tiers, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode in March. It was about our dear beloved McGruff, and he makes an appearance. You also get first dibs to tickets like we said, as well as patron-exclusive video and audio content, including Am I the Asshole, Relationship Advice, Judge Christie, Dear Sinister, True Crime Headlines, and more. And patrons in the Getting Into It tier are also able to vote on a bonus content segment each month that they would like to see live streamed. You also have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We hop on occasionally, and we host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions. This month's, you get a real eyeful because we do a little taste test 
of the ranch flavored ice cream and God <laughs> help us all. We learned a lesson that day. We did the ranch ice cream on the Q&A and then McGruff came on to our bonus content live stream and you can check both of those out. The next Q&A for April is going to be Wednesday, April 26th at 8 p.m. And then the live stream will be Sunday, April 30th at 8 p.m. Central, both Central time. So you can head to uh, Patreon in the pinned post and there's a link to our live stream signups. For our patrons not in the U.S., you have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. If you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag like mugs, totes, or even t-shirts for your dog puppet, visit Sinisterhood.com <laughs> and click shop on the top banner. You can support the show fast, easy, and at no cost to you by rating, reviewing, and following on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Speaking of reviews, you can easily leave one by going to Sinisterhood.com slash reviews. Yours may even be featured on our social media. Have a friend who you think would like us? You can easily share any episode with them by clicking the three dots in the top right corner. You can also share topic-based playlists from Spotify by visiting Sinisterhood.com slash playlist. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod. Like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. You can also follow us on YouTube and TikTok at Sinisterhood Podcast. We do have uh, some extended best of Patreon clips on our YouTube. If you haven't checked that out as well, you can also listen to the show there as well. We're also on Cameo. If you go to cameo.com slash Sinisterhood, you can have us do a custom personalized video shout out for someone in your life. We can say hello. We love you. Happy birthday. Happy anniversary. Any of that at cameo.com dot com slash sinisterhood christy where are you out on the computer i am on instagram at christy m wallace and twitter and tiktok at christy or gtfo heather oh i'm on twitter at mck versus the world and i'm on tiktok and instagram at heather versus the world as always the devil rules the airwaves keep it creepy Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shout outs. Reagan Andrews. Caitlin Rankin. Anna Birch. Amy Hernandez. Sarah Kahermans. Kaylin Kelly. Emily Lucas. Mia Cottingham. Jessica Riggleman. Rebs. Cassia Russell. Rachel Anderson. Emily Davis. Crystal Scott. Sam Cohn. Aubrey Hickman. Kelly Best. Emily Davis. Rosie Norgren, Ariana Smith, Melissa Potts, Katie Fisher, Sharon Brooks, Jacqueline Avia, Allie B, Madeline Mueller, Kelsey Robertson, Isabella Milton, Jen Hall, Nicole Ambrose, Leah, Jessica Renwick, Ariana Gilman, Ashley Rucker, Natalie Ellen Billing. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. We could not do this without you. We sincerely, sincerely appreciate all the love and support, and we hope we pronounced your names correctly. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Wah-ha-ha. Sinister.